We are looking at the uh, Old Testament book of Amos, and so far we've covered some background information about Amos himself, the place he came from, the time when he prophesied, and the conditions in which he served God as a prophet. Uh, we, we didn't meet last week, and so we've slept a couple of times since our last meeting. Let me remind you of the approach that Amos takes in writing this book. God has sent him from his home in Tekoa, uh, to, uh, which is in Judah, to prophesy to Israel, which is not his homeland, but it is the place that God wants him to be. Before he delivers that message to the people of Israel, he will first show God's judgment of surrounding enemies, those who had long been enemies of Israel. And as he shows those oracles against the nations, the Israelites will be able to see for themselves that God will punish the wrongdoing of others. But in that process, they will also be forced of necessity to admit that if God punishes wrongdoing, he must punish it wherever wrongdoing exists. And that will mean, of course, an indictment against themselves. We saw in the opening verse of Amos that Amos introduces himself, he tells of his occupation, he gives the time in which his message is delivered. And the message itself actually begins in verse 2. The text simply says, and he said. Amos establishes quickly the fact that what the people will hear will be God's message, not his own message. And he will repeat that truth again and again. If you will notice in verse 3, thus says the Lord, verse 6, thus says the Lord, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13. You go to chapter 2, verse 1, verse 4, and verse 6. Again and again, thus says the Lord, not thus says Amos. And, and this God who speaks is pictured as a roaring lion. Uh, again, verse 1, the Lord roars from Zion, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. If you were living in the time of Amos in a village or a, a little community and you heard a lion roar, it would be frightening because it wouldn't be one in a zoo, it would be one that had roamed the land and would be able to destroy and so the message will not be a gentle one, it will be a frightening one. The question could rightly be asked, though, why, if God is speaking to these uh, northern Jews, does Amos say these words, that God utters his voice from Jerusalem? We don't have a specific answer for that, and we must simply think of possibilities. Is it possible that Amos wants the Jews to see that God's people essentially still are one people, even though they are divided geographically? It was never God's intention that there be a separation 
between Judah and Israel? Or is it perhaps because he wants to be clear that Jerusalem is still the center of God's dealings with his people? We think about that verse in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 16, when it, God, as the temple is built, that God says, For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. The name of God represents God, and God often alluded to the fact that his name was in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the place from which the message will emanate. The second part of verse 2 says, The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. This is an indication that the message will not be good tidings. Pastures will mourn. That's an that's a indication of drought. And this is one of the things that God had promised would happen to his people even before they entered the promised land if they chose to be disobedient. Deuteronomy 28, if you'll turn there for just a moment. Deuteronomy 28. I'll give you a moment to get there. Verse 23 and 24. Listen to God. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change, change the rain of your land to powder and dust. You can imagine uh, bronze above you and iron beneath you, solid, no hope of a crop. And look how extensive this is. He says, and the top of Carmel withers. Now, when, when you think of Mount Carmel, it's actually a mountain range, and you don't think of a mountain like this, you think more like this, because it is a low range of mountains, actually uh, stretching 13 miles from a southeasterly direction. If you have a Bible map that shows the kingdom years, if you look up... Uh, uh, if you look up in the kingdom years, you will see uh, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, partway down from Tyre, you will see Mount Carmel. The, 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 the range drifted down some 13 miles. And it was a very uh, productive area, believe it or not, even though it was considered a mountain range. Uh, the name actually means orchard or fruit garden. And so you can see what it was like. It was a place known for productivity. Now, the teaching is if the top of Carmel is withered, where there is rain and productivity, what will it be like in the lower regions? It will be even worse. And so this is the extent of the drought. This is the extent of what will happen. Now the stage is set. And what Amos does is to turn his attention to the individual nations and districts around the Jews. In each case, he will do three things. We will do three things. Amos will do a couple. We'll do one more. We'll talk about the place, what we're actually talking about location-wise. And then we'll talk about the charge that God makes against these people and the punishment that that charge will bring. 
and the first up will be Damascus. Look at uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Let me pause a moment. Remember, we're not talking about three literal transgressions and then a fourth. We're using a, a, a device that was common. Three would represent completeness. Four would represent more than complete. In other words, much and too much. I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to Kir, says the Lord. This Damascus is the capital of Syria, and it was really the epitome, the heart of Syria. When you said Damascus, you understood Syria. It was located to the northeast of Israel, and we talked about that earlier, about how Amos will move from northeast to southwest in, in the calling of these names. This would be about 135 miles north of Jerusalem, to the northeast at least, from Jerusalem. And, and Syria had been earlier conquered by David, but had regained their independence in the latter part of Solomon's reign. This happened a lot of cases. David would, would have conquered and then either at the time of Solomon's reign, toward the end of it, or into the later reigns, those nations would be free again. Syria is mentioned multiple times in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And it was for the Jews a persistent enemy. When you mentioned Syria, you knew you were talking about an enemy. Now, here's the charge. But we have to keep something in mind. By the time that Amos says these words, Syria was somewhat weaker at this time in history. They really did not pose a significant threat militarily to the Jews. But the wicked deeds of the past had not been forgotten by God. And, the, and, and in the case of this one and in several others, just one thing is picked out. And it's somewhat symbolic of all of the sins of these people who are condemned. The particular cruelty here that Amos pinpoints is what happened in the time of King Haziel and his son Ben-Hadad. They had attacked Gilead. Now, again, in your Bible, if you'll turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings, somewhat ironic because in 2 Kings 8 and verse 12, after Elisha has spoken to ben, to Hazel and, and, and seems to be ashamed in verse 11 and weeping. Hazel says, why is my Lord weeping? He answered, this is Elijah answering, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. 
Now, go to chapter 10. Chapter 10. And look at verses 32 and 33. Chapter 10, 32, 33. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazel conquered them in all the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, notice, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Arior, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. And then if you look at chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 3. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and in the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with him, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Israel oppressed them. Look down at verse 7. For he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Some think that this last statement in chapter 13 and verse 7 indicates a, a, a hyperbole, just a figurative statement of how uh, they were treated cruelly. Others believe that there actually was a dragging of implements over human bodies and would shred them like grain would be shredded or threshed during harvest. Either way, whether it's figurative or where it's absolutely literal, God saw it as extreme cruelty. And here comes the punishment. There is certainty of punishment in this case and in the ones to come. Notice at the beginning of verse 3, Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not turn away its punishment. If you're using the New King James Version, you'll notice that the word punishment is in italics, and it will be there in each of the following oracles that are stated. And that means that it's not really in the original text. It's supplied by the translators. It's a very difficult expression to try to put into uh, translatable words for us, but it really seems justified. Some think that it, that it talks about God's vengeance rather than punishment, but either way, the result would be the same. What would happen to Damascus? Well, God says it will be burned, lightly in war, and the bar that would protect the gate of the city would be broken, thus allowing the enemies to be able to enter easily. The inhabitants of Damascus would be cut off from any place of refuge, and they would go into captivity. And just for reference, 2 Kings 16, verse 9, relates how the king of Assyria would, in fact, carry captives from Damascus, Syria, away to this place known as Kir. That's Damascus. The next is Gaza. 
If you look at verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. And I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Gaza was a principal city in Philistia, and, to the, and it was, as you note on your map, way to the southwest of Israel. These were sea people who had settled on the Mediterranean coast. And what's interesting about Philistia, and incidentally, Philistia gives the name of the land that we often call Palestine. Palestine is literally land of the Philistines. And so the entire area was known as Palestine, but we know only this smaller section as Philistia. It, it it's actually, was actually a very small country, uh, 25 to 30 miles in length. In other words, not much more than from just here to Wharton, and only about 12 to 15 miles wide. It was indeed a very fertile area. There were five prominent cities, Gaza being one of them. A and we can only assume, because we don't know, but we have to assume, I believe, that it was heavily populated. And the reason we believe that is that the Philistines were able to hold their own against the Jews and many times overcome them. Now, your first trivia question, the most famous Philistine. Who? Goliath. How about the second most famous Philistine? That one's more difficult. Delilah. Delilah, the woman that Samson gave into. <laughs> Remember the Philistine lords had come to her and said, if you don't find out the secret of his strength, we're going to burn your father's house and you with it. So she was the second most famous Philistine. And here's the charge that Amos makes. The Philistines, of course, had been enemies of the Jews since the time of the judges. In fact, they had harmed Israel on a number of occasions. They had even killed the first king of Israel, Saul, and his three sons. And Amos likely could have listed a lot of different charges about what the Philistines had done over a course of years. Instead, he selects just one. And that is selling into slavery an entire town or an entire district. Now, it was not uncommon in war to take captives as slaves. This is not that. This is the idea of not, not the idea of capturing in war. This is the idea of seemingly a raid on an area and taking helpless people and selling them for a profit. Anybody who thinks that the slave traders from Africa selling their own people to Americans was the beginning of slavery has no idea. These Philistines were selling slaves for profit. And the punishment, not just Gaza, 
but three other important cities would suffer God's judgment. Gath, the fifth city, is not mentioned. This, of course, is the home of Goliath, but it's not mentioned. And it's likely because by this time, Gath was already a non-existent force of any kind. God would destroy their protection and their palaces. He would cut off or close off their citizens. He would cause them to utterly perish. You know, over the years, the Philistines would be attacked by Assyrians and Egyptians and the Babylonians. And finally, Alexander the Great would crush them so that they would no longer be even a nation. Now, remember I told you very early in, in this series that prophecies sometimes take place in fulfillment immediately. Sometimes it's a long way off. If Amos is prophesying in the 700s, maybe as early as 755 B.C., this final fulfillment would not happen until 322 B.C. And then Amos turns to Tyre. Look at verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, but I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre which shall devour its palaces. Now you've gone from northeast to southwest back to northeast. Tyre also would be on the coast of Phoenicia. And this area would also be known as Sidonia. It was uh, uh, an important commercial center. You can imagine being on the coast, there would be a lot of opportunities to receive goods or to send goods out from this particular area. The amazing thing is that there was a time when there was a friendship between Israel and uh, the Phoenicians, at least a commercial friendship. Remember, King Hiram of Tyre was selected by David to supply lumber for his own palace. And later, Solomon would make a deal with him in the building of the temple. Remember how the logs would be floated down and then taken inland. In fact, 1 Kings 5 verse 12 says, Hiram and Solomon made a treaty together. That's a covenant, an agreement. And in fact, later, uh, Hiram would call Solomon my brother. Now, he didn't do it uh, because he was happy. I don't know if you remember the circumstance, but Solomon had given him some cities. And he said, these cities are worthless. They're Kabul is what he said. They're, they're worthless. My brother, <laughs> what are you doing, my brother? But at least there was some friendship. Okay, trivia number two. The most infamous person from Tyre, Jezebel. Jezebel of Tyre became the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel. And she is generally, as you know, considered the epitome of feminine evil. When you mention the word Jezebel, you're not talking about anything good. Here's the charge. 
at some point, Tyre had sold an entire group of people. It's called a whole captivity in the text, as slaves to Edom. Now, this seems a little bit strange, and some have questioned it, because remember, Phoenicia's way up here and Edom's down here. But that doesn't make any difference. Somehow or another, they were able to sell to the Edomites, and the Edomites evidently liked to buy people because they had opportunities to use them in their commerce. I think this would have been likely Israelites near the southern border of Judah. In other words, the people from Tyre came down, uh, got them, and then sold them. And the punishment would be that Tyre would be destroyed by fire. Uh, the same punishment would also be predicted in, in prophecy by Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. These people didn't have a chance. Four prophets condemned them. And that same conqueror, Alexander the Great, would capture and destroy Tyre in 332 B.C. Now, I didn't even get to talk to him about this, but I, uh, in the previous class, uh, Kevin was talking about uh, Alexander's travels and so on. The old city of Tyre was inland, but at, for some reason they decided to move the city to a small island off of the coast. And Alexander, according to Josephus, the historian, had to take seven months to build a bridge out there, if you will, to the island. And when he did it and got there, he was furious, of course, and destroyed Tyre as thoroughly as he could. Incidentally, let me go back just for a moment because I think there's a very important point that I don't want to give up. God says, you forgot the covenant of brotherhood. Remember, Hiram said to Solomon, my brother, you know, there was, here's a kinship, we've made an agreement. And the point I want to make is this, God believes when you agree or become part of a covenant, you must keep your part of the covenant. God repeatedly in the Old Testament says of the Jews, you have broken the covenant, the covenant I made with you, the old covenant. But incidentally, the new covenant, our agreement with Jesus when we come to Christ cannot be broken without God being offended by it. We made an agreement to serve our Lord. We must not forget what we've agreed to do. Okay, now we move to Edom. If you look at chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman and shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Uh, What's interesting at this point is we've had three cities that represent three nations. Now we're going to have three districts. It's not just a city representing a district, it's the whole district. Cities will be mentioned, 
but the, the, the emphasis shifts some. Uh, and the emphasis also shifts from non-related people to related people. The Philistines were not relatives. Uh, the Sidonians were not relatives. The, uh, the, the, the uh, Syrians were not relatives. Edom would be a relative. Edom was to the southeast of Judah, and it would be somewhat south of the Dead Sea. The, these Edomites were largely a nomadic people, and that goes back a long way. They, they were really a considerable distance from most of Israel, but there was an important reason for, entering, for uh, mentioning them in these or oracles. And that was that there was an undeniable relationship with the Jews. This dates back to the birth of twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau would become known as Edom, and his descendants would be known as Edomites. The charge would be that there were transgressions, and the result, again, would be the certainty of punishment. Specifically, it was Edom's cruelty and their lack of pity for the Jews. Notice the statement, he pursued his brother, his kinsman, with the sword. That's Numbers 20. Now, didn't really involve killing because they simply denied the Jews the ability to cross through their land. Brotherly feelings should have existed. And then you'll note that there was, in the text it says, perpetual anger. He is anger toward perpetually. This, this is more than a single, single act involved. This is a state of mind, an attitude. And the punishment would be, once again, fire. It's, it's interesting how many times fire is involved. Teman and Bozrah, two principal cities, strongholds of Edom, would be afflicted. In this case, it would be the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who God would use as his instrument of punishment against the Edomites. Incidentally, the prophecy that Amos made is supported by what Malachi would say many years later. Malachi 1 verse 2, the middle of the verse says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Edom would eventually disappear, would not be a people anymore. And now we come to Ammon. Ammon lay to the east of Israel. Look beginning at verse 13. For three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour its palaces among shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity and his princes together, says the Lord. These people... The Ammonites were descendants of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And their ancestry, of course, was nothing to brag about because Ben-Ami, the father of the Ammonites, 
was the product of an incestuous relationship between a drunken Lot and his younger daughter. We read about that in Genesis 19. And these Ammonites had harassed the Israelites since the time of the judges. David had conquered them, but after the death of Solomon, the Jews lost control of them. At least three separate raids are recorded in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and the book of Judges on the land of Gilead. The charge? They had ripped open pregnant women. Now, that sounds terrible, and it is. They weren't the only ones to do that. There were other cruel armies that did that. But notice in this case, they, their purpose was only to expand their territory. This wasn't just in battle. This was just to keep spreading out their territory. And one writer has called this wanton cruelty, cold-blooded atrocity. They behaved without any sense of decency. Here's the punishment. Amos gives a rather lengthy description of what's going to happen to them. Again, we're not surprised. It's fire brought about by war and shouts of advancing enemies. There's going to be a tempest. This is likely a figurative expression to describe the effect that would be caused by their enemies, much like a hurricane or a whirlwind coming through. Their king and their princes would be taken into exile. And again, God used Nebuchadnezzar to punish them. You know, it's interesting that God can use cruel people to accomplish his purpose. And, and these people who were guilty of sin were punished by another sinner who would eventually be punished himself. Here comes the sixth enemy, Moab. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound, and I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Not an important matter, but if you wonder why a new chapter begins here, you're not the only one. I don't know why. Remember, chapters and verses are a human product. We needed some way to be able to figure out where to go for particular texts. And so along the way, humans decided there ought to be a break right here. But it's still the same uh, approach. Moab, the father of the Moabites, was the other product of an incestuous relationship between Lot's oldest daughter and her drunken father. Incidentally, the girls promoted the incest. There is a blood connection, therefore, with Israel. If, if you were related to Lot, if you came from Lot, you had a relationship to Abraham, you were related to Jews. 
The land known as Moab laid to the east of the Dead Sea. What's interesting about this, if you find Tekoa on the map and cross the Dead Sea, there is Moab right on the other side. Notice the Moabites uh, were going to be punished. <laughs> They'd already been punished a lot because David had conquered them. They broke away after Solomon's death. They were later made subject again during the reign of Amri and became independent again under the reign of Ahab. And one can only think there had to be a lot of bitterness as far as Moab was concerned toward the Jews for all of the times that they had been subjected to them. And here is the charge. Chapter 2, verse 1, the second part. Because he burned the bones of the king of, of Edom to lime. It might seem strange as we read that, that the crime is not even against Israel. It's not even against the Jews. It is the Moabites against the Edomites and, and this particular sin. Now, in ancient times, it was considered a great sacrilege to desecrate a corpse. And to burn a corpse, to turn it into lime, probably meant that that lime would be used to whitewash either a wall or a floor. And that's the ultimate contempt. We burn the body, now we're going to use the lime that comes from the calcium in the body. And the punishment would be God would send fire again. There would be a tumult and war cries. In 582, just a very short time following Judah's deportation to Babylon, the final time, Nebuchadnezzar would return to this area and he would destroy all the key cities of Moab. Incidentally, two things right quick and then I'm getting ready to quit. Not every Moabite was bad. You can think of one very good Moabite. And her story comes in an entire book, Ruth. So not every Moabite was bad, of course. Ruth certainly wasn't. There's an interesting statement in Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people and Ammon and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah. I'm going to say it one more time. Surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah. Isn't that somewhat ironic? It all started back in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot left it. The incest occurred. And here are people, and now God says, ultimately, those descendants and their people will be just like Sodom and Gomorrah again, destroyed. Tragic. Now, we're out of time, but let me just say this. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to get to two surprising indictments. Now, Amos turns to Judah. The Israelites are going to love that. But then God is going to say, and how about Israel? Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for opportunities to study your word. Thank you for our understanding of it. We're thankful that uh, we know that uh, you are a just God. Father, we know your love. We know your kindness. But we also know that it is not for us to trifle with your will. And we know that you punish those who are disobedient and those who cause evil to come. We trust you, and we know that your judgment is fair. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you coming. Ma'am.